0: Hello, everybody. Thanks so much for taking the time. This is the Get Started on Your Migration Business Case session, so thanks again. I know there's a lot of good sessions out there, so really excited to have you all here today. Um, as a way of introductions, my name is Doug Gallagher. I'm part of the AWS Cloud Economics team. I'm joined by not just one, but two Aaron's today, so really, really excited about that. Uh, Aaron Rowell, he's the general manager of, of TSO Logic. It's a company acquired by AWS at the end of 2018. And then by Aaron Terrell, he's the cloud platform leader for Coke Industries. He's gonna talk through the Coke industry story and, and how, how they approached building the business case, what were some of their lessons and challenges along the way. As far as what we'll be covering today, I'm gonna to kick off by talking through migration strategies and, and ultimately how, how those selections uh, can actually feed directly into your business case uh, and how that can help develop your ROI and what are some of those key levers. Um, afterwards, I'll, I'll transition over to Aaron Rowell, who'll talk through the TSO logic discovery tool and, and help, that can help automate the discovery and, and, and building action, and formulating your business case. And then, as I mentioned on the prior slide, Aaron Terrell will talk through the Coke industry story. Um, we'll have a brief wrap-up, and then we'll, we're going to have some time for Q&A afterwards. Uh, but I, I want to start by talking about, you know, what are some of the top drivers we see for our customers moving to the cloud? you know for starters there may be some operational trigger points uh, that may begin the, the conversation such as maybe there's a, a impending hardware refresh or maybe there's a, a co-location that's going to expire in the near term um, there may be a need to build out for, for excess capacity or there may have been some downtime events that uh, are, are leading the executives to talk through what are the alternatives um, and, and, and from my experience I've helped customers build I believe like about 103 business cases to date I've been with the team over two and a half years now and you know the, the business cases that are, are typically successful is where in the beginning we kind of understand what are the what are really the drivers of the business case and try to try to help formulate the story around around those business drivers whether it's focused on cost savings or maybe those resilience uh, improvement opportunities or other business KPIs we want to make sure we understand what those KPIs are and really focus the narrative around around those um, around those business objectives. And and when customers develop a migration strategy to the cloud, um, as I mentioned earlier, it's important to categorize the workloads um, in order to understand where the cost impacts, what's the timing look like, um, how is that gonna impact financial metrics such as uh, return on investment, which I'll walk through uh, in a couple slides. Um, So there's this framework that's been developed that we've used with customers, kind of organize and think about how to classify um, on-premise uh, workloads and applications, and it's called the 7R framework. E- each of the strategies begins with an R. And I'd like to kind of simplify into really three main buckets and components. So the first is um, not quite in scope for migration to the cloud. Uh, and th- there's two in-, in this phase. One is retained, so there may be certain workloads, where maybe there's not quite a justification to move to the cloud. Maybe it's mainframe or some legacy. Uh, and-, and maybe customers, may, they may actually revisit it down the line, but it may not quite be in scope. Uh, the, the next is retire. So retire is usually uh, inventory or applications that are already in scope to be de- decommissioned. So it wouldn't quite make sense to move to the cloud. Aaron will actually talks through in the TSO tool how they're uh, using some time series analysis. We can actually help identify inactive servers, and those may be additional candidates for decommission. Uh, and then, then kind of the next phase is what we see, and Aaron Terrell will talk through the Coke industry story, is kind of getting to the cloud as fast as possible. Um, and there's three R's within kind of that, that strategy, if you will. The first is re-host, or, or a, are also known as lift and shift. That's a pretty popular term. It's very little changes, but essentially just moving as-is into the cloud. Um, the, the next is, is re-platform, which is talking to some of our migration consultants, they mentioned it's more of a, a lift and tinker, where there's some, some other changes required. Um, a good example is upgrading the operating system, so maybe going from Windows 2012 to Windows 2016, for example. So it's going to be a little more effort required in order to move to the cloud. Uh, the, the third within that bucket is an article called relocate or VMware on AWS. So with VMware and AWS, customers can take advantage of their existing uh, software and tooling investments to, to leverage the AWS cloud. And then and then the, the, the third bucket is more broader changes. So refactor. Refactor is typically rewriting or rebuilding an application to take advantage of cloud-native services, such as serverless, for example. And then the, the last R is repurchase, or also known as SaaS. So essentially moving, for example, moving from an on-premises CRM solution to Salesforce. And, you know, as I mentioned in the prior slide, you know, with each strategy, there's going to be a cost implication along with you know, perceived business value uh, as, uh, as well as effort. And this is, is, this is more of a general guideline, so it really just depends on what's in scope. Um, some of this can change based upon what's, what's actually in scope for migration. But, but broadly speaking, here's kind of how we see them stack up. Um, so this chart, you know, from, from, the, from the top is the, the least complex, the least level of effort, then moving down to the more higher effort. And so, so in that first bucket, the retain, retire, not in scope for migration. Um, you know, retain, there may be costs that may continue on-premises, so there may be a refresh in a couple of years or the cost to renew licenses, for example, or to renew a co-location. Uh, retire is typically, as I mentioned, uh, decommission cost. So that's usually one time. So one time, maybe to write off hardware um, or to bring in resources to actually do the decommission. And then moving down so the, you know, the re-host, relocate more of the lift and shift. Typically on average from some of our migrations, about eight hours per server as a general guideline. Um, that could be different based on what's in scope, obviously. And then as far as the business value, typically there's and Aaron Rell will talk through and Aaron Terrell as well is you know some stats we've seen, um, looking at a lift and shift, so you know right sizing opportunities. Um, so those are some of the business value benefits we see. The the next is re-platform, as I mentioned in the prior slide. There's usually a little more effort. For example, upgrade, upgrading an operating system, um, on average about 20, uh, twelve to twenty hours per server. There may be more uh, business value beyond just the standard lift-and-shift right-sizing, there may be um, opportunities to save on licensing as well. And then repurchase, it really just depends on the solution. So there could be costs to, to, to do data conversion, purchase licenses, train resources, but there may be other business values such as end-user productivity benefits on the software. And then uh, refactor, on average, 20 to 40 hours per server to rewrite the application. Again, it depends what's, on, what's in the scope, but then there's other business value areas beyond just cost savings, such as go-to-market, potentially revenue opportunities. And then when kind of, we take a step back and look across a variety of migrations, typically about seventy percent is in that move to the cloud as fast as possible, so the rehost, replatform. And Aaron and Terrell will still talk through the Coke story, but in general, kind of falls within that guideline. But now I want to talk about the financial view or, or building the, the, the financial business case. So this chart here, the blue line, is the kind of the on-premises, what's-in-scope non-migration view. And the orange line or yellow line is the migration cost of the investment as well as phasing in the AWS component. So like any other investment, there's typically going to be upfront costs, right? And so in this example, migration costs would be Cost to run dual environments, maybe cost to bring in resources to do the migration, running additional tooling. But typically, you know, it's one-time components. And then as we move to the right, and Aaron Law will talk through kind of the steady-state analysis. That's kind of the post-migration, here's what the savings could look like. And then moving further down the line, we see customers take advantage of additionally right-sizing instances, taking advantage of different storage classes to help them further drive down their cost on AWS. And then many customers, especially uh, you know, the CFO or folks that sit in finance, say, okay, well, what's the return on investment? You know, When, when a, a business case is built, regardless if it's moving to the cloud or it's some other investment, what's the ROI? And so the ROI, is, it's the benefit divided by the investment. So here, cost savings divided by the cost of migration plus the AWS investment. This is just cost only. We have worked with customers to help them build in what revenue opportunities would look like. And, and typically, a, a, a full-blown ROI business case would include both both assumptions. You know, positive cash flow as far as reduction in costs, as well as what um, revenue benefits the investment could bring. So before I kick it off to Aaron Rall, I want to talk through two key levers that could impact the ROI. So this is an example here Uh, in all three three scenarios, it's it's 6,000 servers. Um, I'm going to look at what the ROI is, and then when we change some levers, what the impacts would be. So in in scenario one, 6,000 servers, we're going to assume everything's going to be refactored. So on average, 20 to 40 hours per server. We're going to refactor everything, and it's going to be over three years. And actually, I have the backup calculations. I just didn't want to put a spreadsheet. It got a little uh, cumbersome. So the ROI comes to about 17%. And then that, the, the payback or the time to recoup the investment dollars is four years. And, and some customers, that, that may be okay. Say, four years, we're fine with that. But in other situations, the CFO says, no, that, that's, that, that, that's too long. So when we look at scenario two, we say we look at those percentages that I mentioned a couple of slides ago, and we say, hey, about the 70% is going to be the, the re-host and re-platform still a three-year migration, our ROI is going to improve from 17% to 21%. And then also our payback is going to improve by a year. And then the third scenario is we're going to assume the same same seven-hour mix. However, we're going to speed up the migration, so we're going to improve it from three years to two years. So in this case, our ROI goes from 21% to 25%, and our payback improves by six months, so three years to two and a half years. So really the key is that there really two, two levers. It's, it's the timing of the migration as well as that seven R mix that I talked about earlier. And before right before I hand it off to Aaron Rallo, I really just talked about the kind of the cost savings component, but there are other areas that we've seen customers, including their business case, whether it's staff productivity or resilience or go-to-market and agility. So there's, there's ways to look at KPIs and include those ultimately as part of the, the business case narrative. With that being said, I'm gonna hand it off to Aaron Rollo.
1: Thank you, sir. Aaron Rollo, so I'm the general manager of TSO Logic. Uh, as Doug mentioned, TSO Logic was acquired by AWS uh, very late last year, early this year, and TSO Logic's superpower, what we're really good at doing, is taking data from lots of different sources across an enterprise's data center footprint, data about servers, server utilization, processor type, memory type, even some application information, storage information. And then we have an algorithm that uses that data to project forward what it would look like to run in an optimized environment on AWS. Having built a company that was recently acquired. A lot of people ask how I came up with the idea to start TSO Logic. And I, I, actually, I actually started, I started TSO Logic back in 2012. And, and the, 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 the drivers for me in starting that business was really came from a business that I was running previously that built and ran online photo center infrastructure for the major retailers. I was running and operating six data centers spread geographically. And my business was very seasonal and I had a real cost problem. My cost problem was that I was paying to run all of my infrastructure 24 by seven, 365 days a year. And I only had one really busy three hour window, which came a few days before Christmas. And as I grew that business and as our our top line revenue grew, I never cared how much we were spending on IT infrastructure. I over provisioned my compute I overprovisioned my storage. I built as fast as I absolutely could to keep up with the demands of the business. But as our revenue started to flatten out a little bit, I had a different problem. I, I now had a, a profitability problem. And I started looking at the expenses of my data centers and said, you know, how can I make it more profitable? How can I build a more profitable business by driving down? And, and I started asking the why question to everybody on my team. And the main impetus behind that question was, why is it that my infrastructure costs stay flat when my utilization goes up and down? Right, pretty simple question. And and what I learned in that exercise was that it was actually costing us 35 cents every time we delivered a transaction for our customers. And many of you, I'm sure many of you have used the service. If, If you've ever uploaded a photo to Costco or Walmart or Tesco's and made a print or a calendar or those greeting cards that cover the refrigerators at Christmas time, all of those ran through our platform. And every time you did that, we, we made $1, uh, regardless of how many, how many pictures you ordered. So 35 cents in cost out of $1 in revenue, you know, it wasn't bad, but it wasn't great. And, and by, by identifying and solving this problem of infrastructure utilization based on cost, we were able to drive down our cost to deliver an order down to about a nickel building a very profitable business and, and we, we eventually that business ended up eventually getting 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 sold uh, staples um, acquired it um, a few years back and shortly after that I started TSO logic to focus full time on this problem because I just I believed that enterprises needed a better answer and it wasn't at the time especially it wasn't just about how do I get to AWS specifically it was how do I optimize how do I get my compute in line with my demand and make smarter IT capacity and provisioning decisions so I could align and get better value for our IT dollars and help build more profitable businesses. And TSO Logic was born. It it took us a couple of years to get the product right. Uh, We started off very heavily focused on improving utilization inside of a data center and then quickly learned that many of our customers didn't really want to make their data centers more efficient. They wanted to help and start getting to cloud and and really refactoring some of those applications and and getting them on a a more flexible, payment type, so that's how that's how TSO Logic came to be, uh, and, and today, um, we're, we're an AWS company, we're focused on helping our customers make smarter migration decisions through algorithmic analysis, right? And, and we're really enabling uh, finance leaders, technology leaders, executives across various industries to not only evaluate their current estate to understand how much compute they have and how they use it, but then also how to create an optimized cost model when moving to AWS. One of the things many people don't realize is that there's actually thousands of different combinations of compute, memory, storage, OS types that can be applied from an AWS catalog. And by using the data about your current estate and how it's being used, the software can automatically find the best instance size for the job at the best price and help with some of the comparative analysis. A nice knock-on effect that you also get in addition to the infrastructure optimization is we often find reductions in software licensing costs, especially core-based software. So one of the things that often happens is we'll evaluate a machine and maybe it's a five-year-old server, maybe it's got 32 cores, and we'll say, hey, you know, running on a new generation nine server instead of this older 32 core generation six server, you can actually now run on a 16 core footprint. And the algorithm is smart enough to say, how many cores you'll need, and then you'll be able to say, if there's any um, core-based licensing that you pay for, like SQL Server, you're gonna get a reduction in your overall licensing expense because you're using fewer cores. There's also some really cool technologies embedded into our EC2, where you can actually procure a server with 32 cores or more, and then you can disable the cores that you're not using, further driving down your licensing costs, and the algorithm picks up on all those nuances. So that, that whole use of algorithmic analysis to identify and drive down infrastructure costs and licensing costs and do that in a simple, a simple thing, that's where TSO's superpowers really lie. So a little bit about why this is important. One of the things that we've, we've had, just been in a very unique position to do over the years is we've analyzed tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of servers running across various enterprise types. So we wanted to validate and test some of the assumptions that we had about compute utilization levels inside of data centers. So we, we, we evaluated, we took a sampling of, of some of the data that we collected, about 100,000 servers worth across various industries, and we found that 84% of the servers running in those data centers were over-provisioned for the work that they were trying to do, right? Not a big surprise, right? As, as I said in my own experience previously, I was provisioning as wide and as fat as I could go because I had to meet peak demands in my business and I didn't always know what my peak demands were Sometimes the business drivers would come in, the business leaders would come in and say, hey, we're gonna get 10,000 transactions per second. And we'd build all this infrastructure, we'd do all this stuff, and then they get like, you know, 1,000 transactions per second, right? But I had all this infrastructure, right? So by, it's, it's not a surprise that the over-provisioning is there, um, but the, the thought that it's very likely the case that only 16% of the servers running in data centers today are actually used to the level that they need um, was, was pretty shocking. And so, so one of the things we, we did, we're, we're, we're kind of data nuts. Uh, We really like to to take lots of data points. And one of the things we did to to highlight this is we took the data from these these 100,000 machines and we set it to motion. So this is a data visualization. Uh, Every circle represents a server running inside of a data center. The size of the circle represents the size of the server that's provisioned. And the color of the server, which will be layered in in a moment, shows the utilization of that server. So you'll notice in a typical on-premise data center, you have some really big servers that are being used. You'll see some really big servers that aren't being used. So the green servers are used, the red and orange servers are less used or not used at all. And over time, we're not really seeing any change in size, right? If I have a server that's used that's really big and it's not being used, we're not shrinking that server. We don't yet have a cloud operating model behind it to do that. When we split it out based on utilization, you could see two-thirds of these machines are very low utilization, or completely zombied, meaning they weren't used at all. And you'll see some of those servers are quite large. If we were to move all this stuff to cloud, we would end up with a whole bunch of really large over-provisioned servers if we move them without right-sizing them. But if we right-size those servers, we could actually create an operating model where our servers expand and contract based on need, based on demand, and that act of right-sizing is gonna represent significant cost savings over what you could do on-premise. On average, we see 36% savings across the customers that we work with by doing right-sizing throughout their environment. So when it comes to creating your business case for cloud, there's a few key misconceptions that often lead to the belief that cloud might cost more. And some of it starts with the fact that the hardware is comparable, right? We, we see many customers that will start off their business case or their plan with an Excel spreadsheet of all the servers that they have. And they'll say, oh, I've got a 16 core machine and I'm gonna get a 16 core machine on AWS. And so they go to the AWS pricing page and they figure out the cost and they say it's running Windows or SQL. And you know that 16 core machine that they have maybe is four or five years old. And what they're not actually realizing is that they could go to a much smaller instance size because Moore's law has allowed so much more power into these generation nine servers from the previous servers, right? So, you know, we still see customers with DL380s, right? Some pretty old gear out there. And, and the, the comparability is just not the same. You just can't compare that with a generation nine instance behind like a C5 large. The other common misconception is that software licenses aren't transferable. A couple really good examples of that are around the Microsoft licensing. Any Microsoft SQL Server license purchased before October of 2019 can come to AWS whether or not it has software assurance. There's a couple of nuances as to the types of instances that they could run on, but those licenses are transferable um, and they can be brought over. Um, there's, There's also other infrastructure from AWS such as our dedicated host infrastructure, which allows you to run additional uh, Windows-based workloads, so AWS has become a really great landing spot for Windows-based workloads um, as you as you go through migration. And through the analysis, you can identify not only those core count reductions that I mentioned, but also any license mobility that could come along with it. Another great example is SQL Developer, right? If you've got dev test networks inside of your data center, you're running SQL Developer. Those licenses are fully transferable, so you don't have to absorb any additional cost for your dev test networks. And there's always Depending on where you are in your licensing contracts, there's always arguments to be made or benefits to be evaluated for renting licenses as opposed to renewing or buying a much broader contract. So there's different evaluation points. What's right for your business can only be determined by all of you, but it's good to explore those different avenues and have those cost analytics at your fingertips to say what's gonna be more, what's gonna be less. Another misconception is that the on-premise resources are balanced. Like you saw in the data visualization, we have a lot of underutilized servers. We have a lot of servers that are really big, not doing a lot. We probably have some servers that are really small, trying to do too much, right? It's just the nature of where it was. And then, as I mentioned before, using that direct math methodology, using that like-for-like 32 core server to a 32 core server, all of these things are gonna, are gonna lead us to believe that, that cloud could cost more. So the net effect of this, when we looked at those 100,000 servers that were running from across a sampling of industries, if we were to evaluate that and say, what's it gonna cost to run on-prem? What's my my estimated cost of running on-premise? We would see that's about $142 million. We we come up with this on-premise benchmarking based on working with hundreds of companies, hundreds of enterprises that have actual on-prem cost and we built up a benchmark library of compute costs so we could estimate on-premise expenses. And if we were to do a direct match for those 100,000 servers to AWS, we would estimate that to be about 173 million, which is more, right? Because by doing that direct match, I'm not taking into consideration the economies of scale and the savings based on the newer hardware or any type of flexibility. But if we right size, we can drive that cost down to 91 million, which is a 36% savings. Now this is not, this 36% savings is only considering infrastructure right sizing. It's not considering any reduction in software licensing costs because of the net core count reductions. And it's also, assuming that these servers are still running 24 Right, so additional savings could be had when you start to factor in the fact that you could probably turn off your dev test servers at night, right? Or that you can reduce your licensing expenses. So this is a very initial model that we think of as conservative, but there's so much more you could do beyond this to drive these costs down even further. So if any of you are creating your own business cases a few key, key factors to consider. The first is to capture a baseline of what you currently have. Do an analysis of how much compute you have. Um, don't just look at Excel spreadsheets, you know, because there's always stuff missing. Do an actual analysis, you know, whether you're using a discovery tool and an algorithmic analysis tool like TSO Logic or, or one of our partners, one of our many partner tools that are out there. Do some analysis to, to equate the compute you actually have versus what you think you have, right? and profile the utilization to the extent that you can. Utilization levels can tell a really great story. Uh, The way that we go about it is we capture five minute time series data for all your compute processor memory utilization, and that helps us to detect, since we have that on five minute time series intervals, we can actually detect is the server in use or not in use. Right, and that's actually kind of cool. We, we call that zombie server detection. If we see a server over a long period of time that's not exhibiting any signs of activities, network connection, CPU utilization, memory utilization, we'll tag that as a zombie as a server that potentially doesn't have to be moved. So the, the historic utilization becomes really powerful. And then understand how the instances are provisioned. You know, How old is the hardware? Take into consideration those generational gains. And then compare the costs of bringing those licenses with you that you own versus renting, buying new And then as you get even a little further down the road, you can begin to look at refactoring opportunities or replatforming opportunities where you could incorporate Aurora or Postgres or some of the AWS native native services um, to to backfill from database. as Doug mentioned, we we also see um, a little bit of the lift and shift where you take the OS exactly as you had it. We also see some of the lift and tinker where you start to move from Windows to Linux uh, as part of that process, right? So you can evaluate all those different things and then see what the cost economics do and, and let, the, let the numbers tell the story. You know, I, I mentioned a little bit before about the software licensing. There's actually pretty substantial licensing impacts um, on top of the infrastructure savings. One of the things that we found is that the infrastructure costs are only a small percentage of our overall expenses. In fact, it's about 30% of the expense. The rest is, is often software. And by, by looking at bring your own license with SQL Server, we see savings up to 88%, especially when using our, our dedicated host infrastructure for SQL Server licensing. Windows Server to dedicated host can be reduced to 43%. And dev test environments, especially SQL Developer, can reduce costs by 22%. So it, it adds up. It becomes pretty substantial pretty quickly. And then you know, just a little bit on how do we actually figure all this out? You know, I I talked a a lot about just all of the data that we need. You know, you think about five-minute time series interval data from hundreds, thousands, or tens of thousands of servers, right? You imagine it builds a pretty big cube, you know, because you're rendering on lots of different dimensions, compute, memory, connections, um, storage, OS, right? You you end up with a a whole lot of data. And we see some customers that try to create these models in Excel, and this is kind of what it looks like. You know, they, they and, and Doug's done this, I know. I'm sure Aaron Terrell has, and, and I, I know I did. Um, and, and this, honestly, you know, when, when, I, when I first started doing this in my previous company, trying to figure out how much computer I needed, I was taking data from my network load balancers, I was a big F5 shop, I was pulling data from NetApp, I was taking data from my virtualization stack, my physical servers, I had some Nagio stuff in there. It was just a huge mess, and I had it all these different places, and I'm joining it all together, and then I was like, wait a minute, I actually studied computer science. Um, I can do better than this. And I, and I started dumping some of that data into SQL and figuring out things from there. And, and what we said is, you know, this manual method just doesn't really scale. And so what, what AWS has done, has put together a series of tools and services for our customers, so that regardless of where they are in the phase of migration, there's tooling and services that are available from both AWS and from our partners to help you through that journey. So we talked today a lot about the assessment phase and TSO Logic and some of our partner tools fall squarely into that space. TSO Logic is available to our customers at no additional charge. So you could use it, we help you use it. You get that assessment through the process. And then as you move into the readiness and planning phase, we have other AWS tooling and partner tooling. So there's the AWS migration hub. We have really great partners in the the partner tooling phase. Um, And then as you get into migration phase, where you're actually gonna start doing some bit level replication, we have a product called CloudEndure. CloudEndure was also acquired back in January of 2019, and they're also available at no additional charge for our clients. So as you're thinking about that migration journey from assessment, through planning, through migration, we have different tools that are available to you every step of the way. We're here to help you with that. And our services and our tools are gonna continue to evolve, continue to get better, and in order to do that, we need really great feedback from our customers. So we really, you know, we really enjoy when customers are using the tooling, it's helping them, it's also helping us learn. So with that, I'm gonna turn it over to Aaron Terrell from Coke Industries, and he's gonna to talk to you about how he's used some of this tooling.
2: All right, thank you. Hi everyone, I am Aaron Terrell from Coke Industries, and I lead the Coke cloud platform team that's leveraged by all of Coke for their capability in the cloud. And we're responsible for the cloud on-ramps, getting there safely and securely, as well as the governance and things that go with that. I'm also a center of excellence uh, for the entire enterprise. Uh, Before I get into the story of how we've partnered with TSO and with uh, AWS, I want to give you a little backstory about who Coke is. And uh, we're a very global company. We have about 130,000 people in over uh, 60 countries. uh, Headquartered in Wichita, Kansas, And uh, shareholders consistently, year over year, reinvest about 90% of the earnings uh, from Coke back into the business. Um, As an example, uh, just in technology alone over the last five years, uh, we've reinvested about 15 billion back in. So as you're gonna see next, uh, we're a diverse group of industries. And that's because we don't think about our vision as industry bound, but instead bound by capability. And uh, we've grown through what we call virtuous cycles. We partner, with AWS or with other customers. And we look for ways that's gonna be mutual beneficial, beneficial for the customer, for us, uh, for our partners as well, so we can have a better product that everyone can use. And uh, we really focus on our culture, which is uh, heavily based in market-based management. we have an emphasis on innovation in multiple industries, uh, many patents, many safety awards are out there. And to give you a perspective of the different companies involved, these are all the operating companies that are wholly owned subsidiaries. And uh, just to put a little more uh, reality to it, you may actually use some of these products almost every day. Coke Ag and Energy, uh, they make fertilizers for farming and for home use. Uh, Georgia Pacific, uh, they make quilted uh, cultured northern tissue. They make uh, brownie paper towels, lumber for building products. Uh, Molex uh, makes connectors in your phones. Uh, in computers, servers, various things. Uh, Guardian is another good example of uh, something you probably use chrome on your car and uh, glass in different buildings. Invista Vista makes the airbags in your car uh, and Stainmaster Carpet might be something you use of theirs. And then in addition to our wholly owned subsidiaries, these are uh, companies that we have either investments in um, or we are involved in a partnership. Uh, some of them also are through Coke Disruptive Te- uh, Technologies. We actually invest in a lot of uh, companies you might have heard of, you're just starting to hear of. Day2IQ is one uh, that's out here at, at AWS as well uh, at the conference, and then also Ibotta is one that we recently invested in. So just to show our global uh, footprint, the dark blue is everywhere that we do have a presence. And as we get into our actual story, when we started uh, over two years ago, uh, had to do that analysis, had to get with the financial folks, had to get that buy-in from the CIOs. Um, What did we do? Uh, We targeted about 5,000 servers to consolidate uh, six data centers down into one. So keep one data center and then everything else would be in the cloud. Uh, TSO logic was very good and and helped us forecast uh, the reference savings potential you see up there if we follow the recommendations and complete our migration. Um, I'll speak later to some of the lessons learned and uh, how I can hopefully give you some insights on how you can get there faster and realize those savings. A good portion, like we talked about earlier uh, with with Doug and with Aaron, they talked about the dev test workloads, how those could be turned off uh, on the weekends or maybe after hours. And then also note that uh, some of our licensing is bring your own license for SQL. So our cloud journey was uh, like many other companies, it was primarily lift and shift to get out there faster. Uh, We calculated exiting those data centers would allow us to avoid investments in that aging infrastructure. As the initial migration is complete, we're gonna go back and we're gonna refactor. In fact, we're doing that strategy analysis right now. Even as we're doing our lift and shift, we're doing the analysis to go back and do our refactor in 2020 and 2021. And then I should say we do have some companies, some of our operating units, um, they were able to factor, uh, focus on refactoring right away, uh, but by and large, the majority were not. So where are we in our journey? We're not quite done yet. Uh, we've probably got uh, at least a year left in the major parts of the journey and actually getting into the cloud uh, and then also getting into the refactoring aspects. So see, the, these are some different stats, just uh, letting you know what we're working with. Um, note that we, we now have almost 8,000 EC2 instances Uh, Many of those were not migrated, they're actually net new instances as folks started to take advantage of the cloud. So the benefits and some of the things that we had to focus on when we make our financial case, this is really uh, where you're gonna get that that impact from your CIOs, from your other financial folks. Um, Some of those early benefits have been avoiding that high cost of licensing hardware-based replication services, and also avoiding costly storage expansion. Uh, Some examples that I I like to focus on from an innovation perspective and just a transformation and faster experimentation perspective at GP. uh, We're using AWS data analysis technologies to predict uh, precisely how fast converting lines uh, should run to avoid tearing of paper. So by reducing those paper tears, uh, Georgia Pacific has increased profits by millions of dollars for one product product line. And you can read about it um, at that link there. And just note that's a, Similar to Bitly, that's a rebranding or a re um, shortening tool for links. So you can go out there and it'll take you to publicly available documents either on AWS or on other standard content providers. And then Invista is another great example. They took a, a use case that they had developed uh, internally for content management and converted that over to serverless, and it's 99% less expensive than what it was with servers. So some of the additional benefits from KBX uh, Logistics, uh, they had a new developer, had never used AWS. He went in and within six months learned it, implemented a customer facing software as a service capability. Another good example you can look at with that link is uh, Molex, Accenture and AWS uh, co-developing that edge solution that does use Alexa. And then the Invista transformation story is pretty good. Um, They actually spoke at uh, a recent Remar's conference and you can see that YouTube video out there. So the benefits from a TSO perspective and how they helped us achieve our goals or they're helping us achieve our goals as we continue our journey. Uh, Just mapping out those high-level costs for like-for-like, for for compute, for storage, for those capabilities so that like uh, Aaron was saying earlier, we're not over-provisioning and doing things that uh, could be over-costly. Identifying where infrastructure as a service should be treated differently than on-prem. Uh, Again, avoid that over-provisioning, that old mental model of how you used to do things. And then uh, that clear analysis, they're able to provide for um, all of our CIOs to help with the business justification and get 11 different CIOs to see this potential benefit. uh, It's very powerful. Uh, Some of the challenges we ran into along the way and and still continue to work through today. uh, Knowledge of how your current environment is, is being actually used is critical kind of goes back to the, do you really need all that type of computer, that storage is even being used at all? Um, has it been retired or should have been retired? Um, that on-prem knowledge and cloud fluency is key. And that's another thing that my team takes care of is making sure that we do have cloud fluent developers and other uh, operational folks so that we're using things in the new and improved ways. And then you need to work with your vendors uh, very closely and those uh, business stakeholders for projects. Uh, your vendors may come and want you to over-provision or, or oversize things just kind of for safety or uh, just for their comfort level. Make sure that you're working with them closely at the beginning to get that alignment, to start small and to grow into it as you need to. Some of the lessons learned, uh, migrating enterprise data servers, you know, and, and and data center and storage and all those things that go with it bring their own unique complexities, working with the different operating companies, um, just making sure that you're doing that all in a consistent way. And I think it's very important whether it's a large enterprise that you're focusing on the enterprise level or if you have individual application teams, make sure you're bringing them together and making decisions that should be made at that higher level as opposed to individual teams. Uh, We we allowed the individual application teams to make those reserved instance decisions, and we were only getting about 25% coverage of our reserved instances. We came in early this year and said, we're gonna do this uh, from our team and at the enterprise level, and we we were up to 80 to 90% coverage most of the time. And uh, pay attention to the, to the storage types. Um, TSO can help you work through that, make sure that you've got the right speed, you've got the right uh, quantities that you need, uh, make sure you don't have any mismatches in those capabilities. And then be realistic with your lift and shift strategy uh, versus that refactoring for the cloud. The sooner you can identify that timing that is gonna be realistic for developers to refactor and go in and spend that time, the sooner you can make your your plan that's gonna be realistic to your strategy. And and for us, uh, as I talked about, that lift and shift is only the beginning. And as we continue to refactor, we're gonna realize more of those benefits that TSO was able to project for us. So thank you, that's our story. Thank you, Aaron. So I want to just do a quick wrap-up,
0: then we'll open up to QA. Um Have we seen you know, customers and how we help customers build out that business case you now that we've been talking through? Uh, you know, here's kind of a typical timeline and, and how the the approach works. Uh, you know, as I mentioned in the beginning, understanding what are those drivers, right? So Aaron Terrell mentioned Consolidating from six data centers to one. So maybe that's an objective. Maybe may be other business objectives. Really want to understand what are those KPIs and what are those timelines? And then also understanding who should be involved. So in Aaron Terrell's case, there was what, six CIOs? 11, Eleven CIOs, right? So getting those 11 CIOs, socializing to those 11 CIOs, understanding what their objectives are is really key. Uh, probably bringing in finance as soon as possible, especially when we're looking at cost modeling because at the end of the day, the financial team is going to, they own the ledger. So they need to be comfortable with the assumptions and, and any benefits that may be projected in the out years. Um, and then, then it's really data collection. So leveraging potentially TSO logic to do that discovery. Typically TSO logic will run four to six weeks to, to do that full uh, business life cycle. It can be shortened depending on if there's a, a business requirement to shorten that analysis. And then if they're interested in looking at other areas beyond costs, such as maybe business agility or operational resilience improvements, identifying what applications are in scope, maybe paring that down to three to five and interviewing application owners and business stakeholders to understand where the existing KPIs, whether it's, it's time to market or, or features per release, and then talking through with our solution architects on what the target state could look like. And then after that, it's really just iterating. So using, using the data discovery and any other KPIs to iterate, and then ultimately present that to the customer. In some cases, um, our team will actually help present that to executives with an organization, and then other situations, customers will kind of take on their own so we can be flexible. Just a note here, there are other cloud economics discussions here at reInvent. Some of them have run already, um, but everything will be posted online at the reInvent. So I encourage you to, especially on the bottom, there's, there's other sessions that focus around kind of, okay, after you migrate into the cloud, how, how do you actually manage and forecast your, your cloud expenses? And we also have a variety of uh, uh, training opportunities. Um, you can go to aws.amazon.com forward slash training forward slash enterprise to understand what training opportunities are out there. Some of them are virtual, some of them are hands on keyboard. And so with that, we wanted to open it up to Q&A. So Bowen in the back there has a microphone. So if you have a question, you want to raise your hand and Bowen will just walk over. So we have one up here. We'll start here. Thank you.
1: How do you help companies
0: uh, understand the tradition uh, or the the transition from CapEx to OpEx uh, and tackling that long CapEx tail uh, as part of the TCO uh, conversation, as well as potentially losing a lever that a lot of financial organizations like to pull uh, with being able to spend capex in order to, to manage the bottom line. Right, so unfortunately we, we cannot provide accounting advice, so uh, we would encourage you to
1: talk to your, your, your accountants and your auditors to talk through those those situations. Yeah, the, the, the important thing though that Doug mentioned earlier is Get finance involved early yeah, in that's those right. discussions. That's right, right, because that is that that capex to opex conversion is a real thing that has to be addressed. Yeah, I think That's one of the larger problems we're trying to figure out. We, we're getting our hands around that and seeing you know has AWS
0: obviously helped customers get through that uh, before. So it's interesting to hear those stories. Yeah, I've never heard anybody talk about
1: it. and I guess right. it's probably because
0: it's to- more. Yeah, it's more of, uh, up to the individual customer, they're again bringing in finance and also the auditors to, to look at what's in scope. And,
1: yeah, I, I'll also add that we have a number, one of the things that Doug showed on an earlier slide was what he referred to as the migration bubble, yeah. which is, you know, I just outlaid a whole bunch of capital and I'm still running in my current data center. AWS has a number of financial incentive programs to help That's right. deal with and offset some of those issues and challenges, so the, there are a variety of mechanisms. Best to speak with your account rep and, you know, better learn about those. One of them is called MAP, Migration Acceleration Program. We, we, we have a number of, there's so many of those programs that, you know, the three of us That's are, right. couldn't yep. remember That's them right. all, but I think right here. Hi, uh, is the TSO Logic stuff available globally? Uh, and if so, how do you price it? Yeah, so the question was, is TSO Logic's software available globally and, and how do we price it? Um, it is available globally, and it's available at no charge to, to our customers. Uh, the, the way that you can obtain it is to ask your AWS account manager, or if you happen to be an AWS partner and have a customer that would like to use it, go to your partner development manager. And what they do is that they have a mechanism inside of Salesforce um, to tag TSO Logic, and then we engage uh, directly with with the customer or with the partner uh, to help to help on that journey. Um, what, one other quick note I'll mention I, I, I didn't mention it during the during the discussion. you you also don't have to use TSO logic for the actual discovery of the compute. So if you do have data already about your on-premises estate, that can actually be ingested into TSO logic and you can still get the output, the resulting analysis. So there's lots of different ways. You you don't always have to actually install something.
3: So uh, thank you, Doug, Aaron, and Aaron. It's a good overview, right? So, a couple of questions. One is for you when you showed the investment curve, right? Sure. Uh, So, the overview roadmap appears fine when you're doing a multi year business case. Sure. But typically, when you are in the middle of your migration cycle and in the middle of your case, um, the the CapEx versus OpEx is a big challenge. So, I have the same question, but I'm not bringing it up. Mm -hmm. The question here is uh, when you have a projected expense happening in AWS, in the case, and then due to various different reasons, either because how unoptimized your footprint is or how you outgrew your original projection, multiple different reasons. Sure. Typically, the actuals end up way over that, right? So in those instances, how do you pivot simply because it's OPEX, there's directly a lot of pressure coming into the company, right? How do, you, how do organizations pivot when they're through the business case, is yep. one question.
0: So I think overall the question is, if I summarize correctly how do you forecast the AWS? Is that right? Okay. Hey, we projected cloud I mean, cost.
3: Right? Forecast. Yep. And then as you're into the journey, yep. when you compare what's your CV, which was your original forecast, sure. versus your actuals, you see unfavorable variance. Yep. And that in turn impacts your financial books, right? Because it's all expense. How do we, you know, prepare the finance and the leadership team as we go through that journey?
1: Yeah, uh, you yeah. want to start? Yeah, I can start. Okay, sure. So the question was how do, we, how do we reconcile the deltas between what we thought it was going to be and what it actually is, and how do we prepare the finance team for any of those differentials? Um, so there's a couple of things there that we've seen that have worked really well. I mean, one thing that we've seen occasionally, probably more often than we would like to see, is when the customer actually provisioned the instances, they didn't actually stick to those right-sizing recommendations. They actually provisioned things that were larger. and and that wasn't always brought to the attention of uh, the teams that were overseeing the whole thing. So one thing that we'll we'll often suggest is that as you create your cloud center of excellence or center of enablement or your, your team is having the financial stakeholders as part of that team that are actually providing financial oversight and looking at that reconciliation to say, here's what we thought it was gonna be, here's what it actually was, right? One of the things we know for sure is they're probably not gonna be an exact match, right? Something will be more, something will be less, and then asking the question of why and then really getting to the root of the why. And, and if you don't have the financial stakeholders in that center of excellence or center of enablement, you often miss that step. And, and I think that's one of the ways that you help to reconcile is just having that true visibility into what your expenses really are, what was provisioned, what was suggested, and, and digging deeper.
3: Thank you. Yep. So one question, Adam, for you is as you go through your journey, right, mm-hmm. and you're migrating your application from seven data centers to one, and then to cloud and you're doing lift and shift, right? For one particular application, when you have that deployed across multiple data centers for availability, for resiliency, for whatever reasons, right? what's been your migration strategy that's been most effective as you lift and shift to the cloud?
2: Most effective is a good good question to ask, but uh, I'd say for us, it's looking at how that application behaves. So we had some key applications that, until we had that second region uh, enabled, so that we had true disaster recovery for their requirements, they they were stalled and couldn't really move forward with the full migration. So it's making sure you understand the requirements up front. If they truly need multi-region, then know what that is. Maybe they just need multiple zones. AZ AZ might be good enough for their requirements, but the sooner you can establish those and have the right teams working towards it so that when they get ready and now they're they're prepared to move forward, all of those components are in place and they're good to go. Um, we've used Cloud Endure. Uh, we've used some other tools for replication as well, but there's, there's lots of replication ways you can get stuff um, seeded out there in the cloud so that when you're ready to do your cutover, there's not a, as much time or, or work involved with that cutover period. I think
0: there was a question on here. Thanks. Thanks.
2: Um, yeah, on the uh, slide that showed the circle with the 36% and cost reductions, I was curious to um, understand in your experience, how does that really break down between um, drivings of that, drivers of that savings? So, you know, I heard mention, you know, optimizing, um, you know, on cores or configuration of, of the, you know, VM or whatever it is you're doing, uh, or, you know, SQL licensing or what have you. I mean, where, where do you see the greatest opportunities, like what are the top three or five that drive that 80 when split on
1: that. Yeah, so the, the question was, what, what are the top savings opportunities? If you look at 36% overall savings, what would it break down to be? I, I'll, I'll give you the top three. Um, one is underutilized compute that doesn't have to be on larger machines, 24 by seven. So using, um, not even using on-demand payment models so much, but using burstable instance sizes, where you can get you know, five, seven, 10 hours a day of heavy usage still on, so you don't actually have to rebuild your application to be stateless, but you can use those burstable instance sizes. Um, that's, that's one area. The other one is that older machine to newer machine. You know, I've got an on-premise server that's four or five years old, and now I'm gonna use a, a much newer instance that's much more powerful. Moore's, Moore's Law has you know, done amazing things, and that drives it down. And then the third one is finding the servers that haven't done anything at all for long periods of time. Um, that's a, that's the, other, the third largest component there. I did not factor software licensing cost reduction into that 36%. That would all be on top.
2: Okay, Thank
1: you. A
0: question over there.
1: Hi, got a question for TSO Aaron. Um, we're still heavily in the Excel uh, method. One of the things we're struggling with is how to incorporate for indication education sector in the, in the Netherlands uh, things like labor costs, rep project cost. Uh, the, these were the, these can't be auto discovered. They must be entered uh, in the system. Um, we used to look at Gardner, those kind of things. How did you? Uh, are these variables which you could enter into the TSO software? You, correct, yeah. so I think the question was: Are there variables that you can enter into the TSO Logic software to understand the on-premise costs and the projected costs? Yeah, so, so there are variables that you could enter in. So we, we have our own benchmarking library of compute costs for on-premise where we could say, oh, we, you know, we've seen a whole lot of DL380 Generation 4s, and we know that they cost about this much money when they're running Windows versus this much when they're running Linux, and we'll pin that cost to it. You can actually also override those with any actual costs for on-premise compute that you have. Thank you. There's a question way over there, too.
3: Um, uh, as far as the ROI is concerned, uh, do you take into consideration the investments that you might need in networking and communications because of the migration uh, from a colo, for example, or your own private data center? How 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 does the math work in terms of networking and communications?
0: So I think, believe the question was, do we will we look at networking as well as part of the part of the business case? Yep. The, the answer is yes, yes. Um, you know, in addition to the compute and storage, we would want to understand what is the customer's egress patterns look like, and build that into the equation,
1: yep. You, you might also factor in migration cost. Yep. You, you, there's, there's a number of parameters that you can layer into that ROI. Right,
0: yeah, and to your question, if there's one-time networking cost, that'd be part of that kind of an investment, right? And then in theory, some of that may drop down if that's only a one-time component.
1: Thanks for the questions. Yep. Fantastic. <laughs> Yes, the slides will be available on SlideShare.
2: Um. Hi, Go- going back to your uh, financial KPI illustrative slide, it seems that the, the dollar amount, the total cost for the um, the migration costs, it's lower as it gets shorter. Shouldn't that be the same or equal? Probably like less the same same amount of work would be, you know, kind of needed, right? I mean, I'm just wondering what is the assumption why it's shorter is the timeline, and then it's it got costs reduced. Shouldn't be should not be kind of like plateau.
0: Well, one way is uh, so the question is uh, across those three different scenarios that I shared as far as the overall migration cost. So the, the, the first lever moving it everything from the all refactor to more of a lift and shift, so there'll be overall reduction in cost. So, so going from say twenty to forty hours per server in migration cost down to say eight hours per server. Uh, that's going to be a lever as well as who's actually you know doing the migration, whether it's onshore or offshore resources, would, would come into play as well. Um, and then as far as the timeline's ter- concerned is, you know, the, the faster you can, can move, uh, there's, there's less cost that's gonna drag out across the migration. So You can do it in a
2: shorter window. It's gonna reduce the overall cost. Thank you. Some examples for us where we were able to get out of our colo location. Uh, we also were able to avoid some costly upgrades to infrastructure that if we would have stayed or kept going longer in our journey, we couldn't have avoided doing those things.
0: Yeah, the, the cost of running dual environments, yep, yep. that's right, yep. Yeah, good point, thank you. We have about five minutes, any other uh, I think questions? One minute, I think. Oh, okay, <laughs> Clock us off for me. So any other? Any final questions for Doug, Aaron, and Aaron? Okay, well, thank you everyone for taking the time to attend the session. Thank you. Please, uh, we have a survey, so please complete your survey. We love feedback. We want to make the, uh, the, We want to continue improving. So take the time to fill out the survey, and thanks again for coming.